you have your Bible, please open them up to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 42 through 50 for our time together this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in your seat, you can find that on page 794. 794. Artificial intelligence. How are you feeling about it these days? So I'm not good. Uh, from the little I've read, it seems to offer some benefits. You've seen some of it, right? seems to offer opportunities for you to, to grow and learn faster. It gives you better ways to do research quicker, uh, help you be more efficient with your time, manage your money, and even help you with communication. There are even some who think you can use it to write a sermon. And if that's you today, or if that's a pastor today, he should use it to update his resume, since he needs to find a new profession. Amen. But with all the potential blessings, there seems to be a lot of potential dangers. Uh, For example, I recently saw a video of an elected official. It was him on the screen, and he was talking, and it sounded like him, but the things that he was saying sounded nothing like him. He was saying very offensive things about our own country and other elected officials. Turns out this whole video was generated by AI. It wasn't even real. It was very deceiving. Under further study, you realize that it had the appearance of being true, but turned out it was a fraud. We live in a world filled with phonies and counterfeits, where products and people have the appearance of being genuine, and yet, upon further study, we see they're all just really pretenders, or many are at least. That is true in our own secular age, it may be even more true in American Christianity especially where we live. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, depending on where you live and who you ask, you might get a variety of different answers. If we were to go this afternoon and poll the citizens of Fort Worth and ask, are you a Christian? I assume that the vast majority of the people would say, yep, I'm a Christian. But then if you were to press them on why, what makes you a Christian, you would get a variety of different answers. Some would simply say, well, I believe in God. Others would say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Or some would say, well, I go to church a few times a year. And some would say, I identify as a Christian simply because that's what I feel like I am. But is Jesus unclear about what it means to be a Christian? Is Jesus unclear about what it means to follow him? No, he's made it clear in his word. What are the marks of a true Christian? those who have really been set apart to follow Jesus? Well, that's the question we're going to pursue this morning in our passage. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. So please follow along with me as I read God's Word. This is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell, 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. From our passage today, I think we see two marks of a true Christian. Two marks of a true Christian, and this is my outline. Number one, they have a love for all the saints. True Christians have a love for all the saints. And number two, they labor to put sin to death. They labor to put sin to death. So number one, they have a love for all the saints. This is verse 42. Number two, they labor to put sin to death. This is verses 43 through 50. Let's look at point one now. What are the marks of a true Christian? Number one, they have a love for all the saints. If you're new with us today, we have been journeying through the gospel of Mark, simply trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? So each week, we're just taking a section of Mark, and we're just trying to discern who is Jesus, and what does it mean for us, and what does it mean for our world? We're trying to figure out. And so really our passage today is kind of a continuation, part two, of a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples last week. We saw that in Pastor Ben's sermon, that not only did Jesus reaffirm his mission had come, he had come to die and be raised, he also revealed what it means to follow him. We saw, as we've seen many times, the disciples were still confused. They were still holding on to worldly ideas, especially when it comes to being great. So Jesus wanted to show them what real greatness is. So he takes a little child and he sets the child in their midst and he says this, if you go back to verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Though Jesus is happy for the little children to come to him and believe in him, Jesus here uses this little child to take it as an example of someone the disciples would be tempted to treat as insignificant. Someone that has no value, someone who's the last, the least, and the lost. And Jesus says, if you want me, you have to embrace those people in your life who are coming after me, who are insignificant to you. Because anyone who comes to Jesus, they aren't insignificant to him. And they should not be insignificant to us. And yet these disciples, they still did not get it. It's almost in some ways that Jesus is saying, you have been catechized by these religious leaders. You need to relearn the truth. You need to know what it really means to follow me. So he still has the child in his midst and he uses this child as an example. Because the disciples come boasting to Jesus saying, look, There was another man over there casting out demons, and we saw him, and he was not with us, not doing it the way that we thought he should be doing it, so we tried to stop him. Their ignorance exposed itself to to Jesus in this moment. And Jesus, yet again, using this child as an example of someone who's the least of these, says this in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
Jesus is trying to show the disciples how utterly foolish their thinking was. He, and, he, and just look here again what he says with the child. He basically says, it doesn't matter who it is. So pick the person in your mind that you're most tempted to disown, discourage, or demean. doesn't matter if it's a Jew, a tax collector, a Gentile, an old, a young, a Republican, or a Democrat. If they're seeking to come to Jesus, you should not stop them. Jesus warns them of causing anyone who's coming to Jesus from sinning. Saying, don't let you be the don't don't let your own actions and your own thoughts be the reason that someone stumbles on their way to me. Now Jesus uses the word sin here. It, it's got multiple meanings. It, it means to offend, to stumble or fall away. It's got the imagery. So imagine TRBC was going to have a, one of those great and glorious things called a field day. That's the greatest day in elementary school history. It was field days. And imagine at this field day, we were going to have a relay race. You know, you run around the, the track and you got the batons, we're going to do that. Imagine that, that Barrick and I are on the same team. And so I start and I'm running as fast as I possibly can. And I'm coming up to Barrick and he's running ahead. He's not even looking at me and he's reaching back, trying to receive the baton. And as I come up near him, I don't hand him the baton. I just trip him and run right by him. Even if you've not watched relay races and those kinds of things, you would understand that would be a ridiculous thing to do. You would say, why are you tripping up someone on your own team? And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. Why would you trip up those who are on your team? Why would you hinder those who are running to me? Why would you keep them from coming to me? They are running the same race as you. And Jesus says to them, you clearly don't understand yet what it means to follow me. You don't understand what it means for me to, to come and be the Savior of all people. And he says, whoever would do such thing, to get their attention, he says, whoever would do such a thing, it would be better for that man. It would be a better outcome if he took a millstone, hung it around his neck, and was thrown into a sea. A millstone was this huge cylinder that they would use to, to mill out grain. It would take two or three or four men to pick one of those things up. So to have it put on your neck and to be thrown into the sea means that you would immediately sink to the bottom and drown. It's a, an extremely graphic image that Jesus gives us. He's saying it would be better to drown in the sea than to discourage someone from following Jesus. Why would it be better? Why would that be a better fate? Because Jesus' judgment will be worse than drowning in the sea. Jesus will come and bring judgment on anyone who has harmed his own or sought to mislead them or lead them astray. Jesus wants us all today to know that he loves his own and he will protect his own. Jesus so closely identifies with his people that to attack them means you're attacking him. Go back to the Apostle Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 in your minds. Saul is a, a man who's zealous to end this thing called the way. He wants to put an end to those who are following Jesus. And so he's doing everything he can. If it means imprisoning or even killing those people, that's what he's going to do. And he's headed to Damascus to do more of the same. And he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? 
Does he say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting those men and women who've done nothing wrong? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? To harass Jesus' bride is to invite Jesus' wrath. Jesus confronted Saul because Saul was confronting his bride. I think this means for us we should be very serious about loving and caring for all Christians, caring for all who are coming to Jesus, regardless of the disagreements we may have with them. Now, I know I'm basically re-preaching Ben Robbins' sermon from last week, but I think it was Martin Luther said, someone came to him and said, why are you going to preach that again? He's like, well, because I don't think you've gotten it yet. So I don't think Jesus thinks we've gotten this yet again. Maybe it's just for me, but we all need to hear this yet again. We should seek, brothers and sisters, to encourage and help anyone who believes the same gospel as us. Whoever preaches, the only way to have your sins forgiven is through trusting in the finished work of Christ is a friend of ours. We want to rejoice and pray that the Lord would cause their work to flourish. Now, if we can have a moment of honesty, and I'm going to be honest for you as your pastor, this is extremely convicting for me personally. It's the easiest thing in the world for me to to go to another church and to sit with another pastor and begin to evaluate all that they do wrong and all that they do do right. To become a, a church snob in some ways. To be like these disciples to say, they're not doing it my way, so they're doing it the wrong way. And I want to be very clear. There are right and wrong ways to live the Christian life. There are right and wrong ways to lead the church. We don't want to shy away from what we believe Because God has not been shy about what we should believe. Even so, we should all have a pause in our spirit about speaking poorly of those whom Christ shed his own blood for. We must always speak the truth, but always in love. That's what Christ calls us to. If they have the same gospel as us, we should seek their good and rejoice at the Lord, the good the Lord does through them, even when we disagree with them. I don't know if you've noticed in our pastoral prayer, that's the, kind of the, the, la- the prayer that I prayed this morning. Almost every week, we're praying for a lot of different churches. Even today, I, I prayed for St. Andrew's Anglican, I prayed for Trinity Presbyterian, and I prayed for Christ Chapel. All three of these churches, I disagree with them on a, a few different issues, and yet they have the same gospel as us, and I rejoice. Why would I be frustrated if the Lord brought revival to Fort Worth And it wasn't in TRBC, but in one of these churches. Why would I be disappointed if the Lord brought revival, but it just wasn't through us? It was through a church that I have some disagreements with. No, the only reason that I would be disappointed would be because my own pride. My overinflated view of my own self. And it would mean, if I would be disappointed, it would mean that I've misunderstood the gospel completely. I've misunderstood what God is doing, has done in Christ, and is doing in Christ. One of the men that has challenged me on this kind of thinking so much and encouraged me to be more warm-hearted and happy about what God's doing in the work uh, in the lives of other Christians is John Newton. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, is a man who never got over God's grace towards him. You just read his letters. They're so rich and warm and encouraging. In one of the letters that I read, he was writing to a younger pastor who was in conflict with what he believed to be another Christian. And he was writing Newton to figure out, how do I address this man? How did I deal with him? 
Listen to what Newton says to him. And think about how you can apply it to your own life. Newton writes, If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet him in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that, that period in your thoughts. Though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Newton is saying the same thing Jesus is saying. To not love the saints, regardless of the differences, is to not love the Savior. When you cannot love another Christian or forbear with them, it only reveals the deficiencies in your relationship with God. It only reveals you don't understand what God has done for you in Christ Because when you realize what God has done, that he not only didn't give you what you deserve, he's given you grace to be made right with him and to to live with him forever. It radically shapes how you treat all people, especially believers. Brothers and sisters, members of TRBC, what kind of culture should this create in our church in light of what Jesus is saying here? What kind of people ought we to be in light of what Christ is saying here. I think it means we should be serious about loving and caring and watching over those who are spiritually vulnerable and weak. I think it especially means we should be very intentional to care for for new believers and weak believers, that we should never look down on anyone or neglect them, that we should care for them and cherish them. I think this means as our church grows in diversity of age and and skin color and background and opinion, we should be slow to speak and quick to listen, eager to bear with one another and encourage one another even when we disagree. I think it means we should be vigilant to avoid gossip and slander and resentment in this church. I think it means we of all people should be the happiest people on the planet. We all could be dead in our sins. But praise be to God, we're not, because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. This room, we as a people should be the warmest people on the planet because of what God's done for us. Have you ever walked in the mall by an Auntie Anne's? Or ever walked into a Cinnabon? Or into just a new bakery? And that warmth just hits your face, and you're like, I want to be here. I want our church to feel like a Cinnabon. <laughs> Amen. Though I'd love to serve cinnamon rolls, I want to serve the gospel. That's, that's, that's the warmth I want there. But you know what I mean? Have you been around those Christians? They're just so happy. They're just so warm. They rejoice because they're seeing God, God's grace in other people's lives. That's the kind of culture I want to have here. That we continually stare at Jesus. And we invite others to do the same. 
We are a warm and happy people. We want to be the kind of place that's so warm that any non-Christian in Fort Worth could look at us and say, oh, that's what Jesus is like. We always want to give a clear picture of Jesus because that's what he's called us to do in his word. You see, we love all the saints because that's, that's the calling that Jesus has put on all of our lives, and it's the mark of being a true Christian. To love the saints, to rejoice in what God's doing, to not only not want to see them stumble, but want to see them flourish. We are people who not only avoid trying to hinder them, but we want to help them and grow as they journey towards heaven. Brothers and sisters, the mark of a true Christian is someone who has a love for all the saints. And not only that, they labor to put sin to death. They labor to put sin to death. Why don't you look back at verses 43 through 50. I know we've already read it, but I'm going to reread it so we can kind of get it back in our minds. So follow along with me as I read those verses now. Jesus says this, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled and with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes, eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So Jesus transitions from having a concern from fellow believers to having a concern for your own soul. It's kind of what this passage is doing. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, if you don't want to trip other people up, make sure you're putting your own sin to death. That's the best way to not be a hindrance to others, is to put sin to death in your own life. Jesus in this passage is helping all of us today understand the serious nature of sin. He uses three body parts to illustrate, basically saying if you have three rogue body parts that cause you to sin, then here's what you should do with it. He First, he, he uses the hand. He says if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Then he goes and talks about the foot. If your foot causes you to sin, then cut it off. Or even your eye. If your eye would cause you to sin, then pluck it out. He's saying even if your own body would cause you to fall away from me, it would be better for you to suffer harm in this life than in the next. To be clear, Jesus is not being literal here. He's not calling us to maim ourselves or to mutilate our bodies. He's being intentionally hyperbolic to show us how dangerous sin is. He's saying you should kill your sin because your sin is trying to kill you. It's destructive and it's devastating. See, the aim of your sin is always this. It's always hoping to turn you away from Jesus to lead you to hell. It may have the appearance of of being your friend, but it is always your eternal foe. It may present itself as comfort, but it's always cancer. It may offer assistance, but it only leads to anguish. That's the truth about sin. And with these different body parts, I don't don't think as an allegory, we're saying this represents this kind of sin or this kind of sin. I think Jesus is saying it doesn't matter the temptation. It doesn't matter the sin. It doesn't matter how you're desiring to be led away from me. You should put it to death. 
Its aim is always your eternal destruction. To turn away from Jesus, to chase after your sin, is to choose the path of hell and destruction. So Jesus says it's better to lose life and limb and go to heaven than to chase your sin and go to hell. Just notice how Jesus speaks of hell. This may be one of the clearest teachings that we have in the Gospel of Mark on, on, on hell. Verse 43, he describes it as the unquenchable fire. Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You'll even notice in your Bible that you don't actually, in the ESV, there's not a verse 44 and there's not a verse 46, at least in mine. And there's a footnote for that. Just letting us know that other translations tell us that verse 44 and 46 are simply a recapitulation, a retelling of verse 48. Just saying it over and over again. Jesus is using verse 48 there from Isaiah 66 to help us understand eternal judgment. And the word that Jesus uses for hell comes from Gehenna. That's, that's what it can be translated. And that word comes from the Hinnom Valley, which was right outside of Jerusalem. It's where the wicked kings in Israel would actually practice human sacrifice. But when King Josiah came, he turned it into a garbage dump where they would burn all their trash. So when Jesus is using this word, the disciples would have had in their mind this, the fires of the Hinnom Valley just smoldering and being constant before their eyes. And Jesus talking about the, the reference to the worm uh, is a devouring worm that is never satisfied. An unquenchable fire that, that cannot be put out. This picture of hell is a picture of eternal conscious torment. It's graphic, it's horrifying, and yet this is the wages of sin. Hell is always the fruit of sin. Hell is the fruit of sin. Now I understand for some this topic can be difficult to think about. But I want to encourage you today. We need not be embarrassed about what Jesus teaches. I know it's been said before, there's not a single sentence in all the Bible that God is ashamed of. Even the teaching on hell. And I want to encourage you, it may not be this church, but wherever the Lord leads you, find a man who's going to tell you what God's word says from all the scriptures. God's not ashamed of it. He's actually told us his word for our good, even when it kind of grates on our own conscience at times. It's God's work in our lives to hear his word and to believe it and to speak it. Jesus here, he, he's emphatic and clear. He's actually give, being a, 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 so kind to us today so that we can see the reality of where sin is trying to lead us. There are many in our own day who want to explain this away. And understand the idea of suffering for eternity is gruesome and grievous, and we should be grieved by all of it. But this is the reality of where sin leads. This is what we deserve for our sins. And as we read this, we must always remember that God is a good, holy, and just God. That God is holy and just, and he must punish sin. Oftentimes, as we consider hell and sin, it's difficult for under, us to understand because we have a warped sense of justice. We have a warped sense of righteousness, but God does not. His justice is always just. His righteousness is always right. And the thing that we should be shocked about today isn't that God punishes some. No, the thing we should be shocked about today is that God hasn't punished all. We should all marvel at the fact that God doesn't punish everybody for their sins. You see, that's the wondrous truth of the gospel that we heard earlier and we've heard throughout this service. 
is that though we deserve God's good and right judgment because we've sinned against God in thought and word and deed, God made a way so that we wouldn't have to experience His justice, but His mercy. You see, Jesus came and He, he lived the life we could not live. He satisfied not only the law of God, the righteous requirement of the law, but he satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. That's what's happening in the cross. So to try to undo hell is to try to undo the cross. To explain away hell is to explain away the cross. Because if hell does not exist, then Christ died for no reason. Oh, but brothers and sisters, Christ died for a reason. To save sinners from the wrath of God. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're confused about what it means to be a Christian. Jesus came to save sinners from their sins and from hell to live with God forever. And if you want to be made right with God, then believe on Jesus and be saved. If you want to have a peace of mind knowing that I can live in this life not fearing death, the only peace that can can be provided through that is, is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can give that kind of peace. So turn to him and believe on him today and be saved. And for us as believers, this passage isn't merely talking about the consequences of hell. No, this passage is also telling us about the consequences of the cross for the Christian life. Since we will have no place in hell as we live in this life, hell should have no place in us. Jesus didn't merely save us from the the penalty of sin. He's also saved us from the power of sin. This means, this passage is declaring that Jesus saved us for a life of holiness. Holiness means to be set apart, to to seek to be like God in the world. A life where we wake up every single day and we make war on our sin. We labor to put sin to death. We aggressively pursue it so it has no place in us. For that's the mark of being a true Christian. Jesus uses this imagery of cutting it off because he wants us to cut off our sin. It's trying to cut us off from God, and we must cut it off from our lives. Though Jesus is being hyperbolic in the imagery, he's not being hyperbolic in his intent. He wants us to be serious as we possibly can about putting our sins to death. So that means that there should be no sin in your life that you're apathetic towards. There should be no sin in your life that's a favorite sin. No sin in your life you try to justify. It all should be seen as foolish. It's like this, there's many of us who have stuff that we don't really like that much, but we still keep it. That's why we have an attic, right? So there's things in my attic that it's like, I don't really use that much, but I like to know I have it. There should be no sins in your attic. Get it out. Declutter. Get rid of it. That's what Jesus is calling us to do today. It's like this, what kind of snake is a good snake? A dead one. What kind of sin is a good sin? A dead one. There's no such thing as a good sin. We should kill them all. And snakes too. How are you doing right now fighting your sin? Do you actually have a strategy for putting sin to death in your own life? I heard a pastor friend of mine not that long ago explain it like this. If you want encouragement to fight your sin, every time you're tempted to sin, whatever it might be, we need to just pause for a moment and think about the worst case scenario that sin could bring. Even go into detail about it and assume that every time you commit that sin, that's actually going to happen. Because that's what sin is trying to do. It has the appearance of 
being light, of being comfort, of being relief, but it's only trying to bring you pain. It's only trying to bring suffering in your life, not only now, but forever. So assume the worst will happen because that's what it's trying to do in your life. Jesus calls us here to wake up every day and take a fresh stake and nail it right into the heart of our sin. And Jesus, even here, he, he gives us other motivation to consider fighting sin. At verse 47, he says, It is better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus is saying, think about eternity and then fight your sin. Think about the end, and it will provide all the motivation you need to put your sin to death. Because it reminds us that this fight is a temporary fight. That when you breathe your last breath or Christ returns, you won't have to fight anymore. It will be over. The part of you that's always trying to get you away from Jesus will have no place in you. It will be done with. So Jesus says, think about the kingdom. It'll be over with. You'll be finally and fully free forever once you're in the presence of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you're noticing this. I basically said that same thing two weeks ago. And I think I even said it two weeks before that. Jesus is trying to get our attention to say that he is better than our sin. So we should always put it to death. He's saying that eternity is worth it. So suffer now by putting sin to death, and you won't have to suffer then. And he's going to continue to say that throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. I mean, even as I was writing this sermon this week, I was thinking of Paul in Philippians 3. Here's this man, from a worldly perspective in his own day, had everything the world offered. He had it all. And in Philippians 3, he, he says, if anyone has room for boasting, I've got more. And he lays out, lays out all his worldly accolades and all the things he's accomplished. And then he says this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I had suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 11, he goes on. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying what Jesus is saying here. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's worth suffering in this life if it means you gain Jesus in the next. So keep going, keep fighting, keep putting it to death. It's a simple message, but we need to hear it every single day until we breathe our last breath. It's the life that Jesus has called us for. Either you suffer now and live and rest forever with Jesus, or you try to find rest in the world and suffer forever in the end. That's what he's saying here in verses 49 through 50. If you look down at verse 49, he says, Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. These verses can be a little bit confusing for us, but they would not have been for Jesus' disciples. This echoes the Old Testament sacrificial system. So if you go back in your Bibles, you can just mark it in Leviticus 2.13. With every sacrifice that was offered up to God in praise, it was supposed to be seasoned with salt and then consumed by fire. It was a, a living, it was a burning sacrifice of praise to God, and it was a pleasing aroma to God. So Jesus is saying, look, you were saved to be a living sacrifice unto God. Your life 
You putting sin to death is a living sacrifice to God. How will everyone be salted with fire? Well, for the non-Christian, those who persist in rejecting Jesus, they will be salted with the fires of hell forever. But for the Christian, how are we salted with fire? Well, we're salted with fire by carrying the cross. See, that's the refiner's fire. To pick up Christ's cross and follow him is how Jesus purifies you and me every day. That's how he's burning away the sin and the imperfections in all of us to make us more like himself. And each and every day we endure the cross, we walk through that fire, and every day we live a life of, ple- uh, of sacrifice and that's pleasing to God. So brothers and sisters, though we worship God in this room on Sunday, how you fight your sin Monday through Saturday is just as much worship to God. Every time you say no to that sin, your anger, your, your pride, your greed, your, your lust, your bitterness, the gossip, you say no to it to say yes to Jesus, your life sings to God. It brings him praise and honor because in that moment, what you are saying is, God, I see you as better. I see you as the only one worthy of my affection and worthy of my praise. Anytime you go through a trial, when you experience great loss in this life, yet you still cling to your faith, that is a living sacrifice unto God. You are singing praise to God with your whole life. To me, there are a few things more beautiful than seeing a saint who's lost, it seems to be everything in the world, yet they're still clinging to their faith. That's the best song this life can sing. Seeing a a saint saying, Jesus, I'm grieving, but I trust that you are better. That is the living sacrifice that Jesus has called us to. The saltiness that Jesus calls us to is a life of being totally consumed by him. Having completely undivided devotion towards him. That's the, the second part of verse 50. Verse 50 at the end is really a summary of the whole thing. He's saying, have salt within yourselves, meaning continue to trust me, to continue, continue to believe in me, continue to believe in the gospel, put sin to death, and have peace with one another. Meaning have love for all the saints. You could sum it up as have love for all the saints and labor to put sin to death. Why these two things? Because these are marks of a true Christian. This is what Jesus has saved us for, that we would love all the saints that we would endure through trial and temptation, and by doing so, we bring glory and honor to God. That's how God is bringing glory and honor to his name in the world. So I thought about concluding this sermon. There's many examples that I could pull from from history of people who seem to, to endure through trial and yet have a love for all the saints as well. The two that came to mind, many of us know, are Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint. If you don't know them, they were missionaries with their husband, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint in Ecuador in the 1950s. And they were there hoping to share the gospel with many people who had never heard of Christ. And they encountered a hostile tribe called the Alcas. Though they initially experienced success with these people, it quickly turned in a way that no one had anticipated. One Sunday morning, there were five missionary men, including Jim and Nate, They encountered the Alcas on January 8, 1956, and that would be the last day of their life on this earth. How did Rachel and Elizabeth respond to that? 
instead of fleeing and, and running from the people who killed their husbands, two years later, they moved back into the tribe with those very people to read the Bible with them and share the gospel with them. And one of the very first converts was the man who killed Rachel's husband. It would have made sense for all of us to think, well, these women, they should just go back to the States. It would make sense for some of us, even though it wouldn't be right to say, well, I understand they're, they're bitter and they're angry. And so that, that makes sense. It's so hard to, to live a life without a husband, to experience the loss of a husband. And yet that wasn't their response because they had experienced the grace of God and they wanted these very people to experience that same thing. The reason they couldn't turn away is because they had found something in Jesus that was so great, they were happy to tell even their own enemies about him. They found something in the Lord Jesus that was so wonderful that would cause them to endure in the midst of the trial and love those who seemed to be unlovable. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. This is what Christ has called us to. It's through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom, but we don't enter alone. Christ has given us his church to love and cherish and to endure with until the very end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bore his cross for us, that we might bear his cross in this life for him. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are so convinced and so consumed by you that it shapes not only this church, but it begins to influence this even city. That people around us who were lost and dead in their sins would, would get a clear picture of what you're like and what you offer to the world. Father, calls us to be a faithful people a warm-hearted people, a, a happy people in you. Oh, Father, be merciful to us and give us more grace in the days ahead as we encounter trials and, and temptations. Cause us to be a faithful people, and we pray that your son would return soon so that the struggle would be over, so that we could be with you forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.